as you know, your church is raising money for your young people to go to youth camp here in Southern California. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an effort, it's a burden, but it's well worth it. And it's, and it's a wonderful thing that uh, your pastor is being called on to preach uh, these events, uh, Louisiana and elsewhere. And I'm thankful to you for allowing him to go and to do that and to support uh, him in that effort. Uh, because you could be jealous and say, no, we want you here. Uh, you could have that approach. But the uh, knowing that there are young people across the United States, North America, and around the world who need the quality um, ministry that your pastor brings uh, week in and week out right here. And so I say thank you um, on behalf of all the young people for allowing him to do that. You do have a wonderful pastor uh, and his family. I want to speak to you tonight. Uh, also, it's good to be with AJ. I've known him forever. Don't want to overlook. I know he's Rich's younger brother, but um, uh, it's, a, it's just really cool to be with him. I didn't even remember that he was here when we came out here. I was kind of surprised, so it was a good surprise. So I want to, I want to talk to you tonight on how to get uh, where you want to go. Um, one of the cool things that I've noticed about this church is I've come during the day at different times to pray is there's a number of people that are here. Um, Friday when I was down here praying, um, as I was praying, there were people here when I got here. There were people who came while I was here, and there were people that were here when I left. And, and today I saw that again, and we saw that on Sunday. And, and different times uh, we've seen that, and, and I, I think that's beautiful, and I'm very thankful that that's happening. And this church has a dream, and each one of you have individual dreams and passions. And I, wanna, I want to uh, encourage you on that path, on how to get to where you want to go. I want to mention to you that uh, I've been involved in several building projects, overseen a number of building projects, and I know what you're getting ready to get into with building your own building, and it's not easy. The rule is it always takes longer than they said it would take. It always costs more than they said it would cost. That's the rule. There are always more problems than they said there would be. That's just a rule with a building, and after you do a few of those, you kind of just shrug them off. The first time you do one, if you've not done a building before, you get all uptight about it. After a while, you just kind of shrug it off, and that's just the nature. But, but that's just one of the places this church is going, and there are various things that this church is doing. And, and I believe that, um, that we, we get discouraged, and our discouragement destroys us and keeps us from getting where we want to go because it, it knocks us down. The elementary school that I went to uh, when I was in elementary school quite a few years ago had a rather large merry-go-round. This was an enormous merry-go-round, one that uh, the uh, people who protect kids would never allow a school to have these days. This was a, a ginormous merry-go-round and hold about 20 kids. And, and, they would, uh, and, and when we go out to recess, we would cram as many people as we could on this merry-go-round. We'd get the entire class and the next class and the next class, and we would get them all on this merry-go-round. They'd be piled up on the bars and everything. And then the guys would get on the outside of the merry-go-round, and we would start to push. Now, when we would start to push, we were little guys, you know. We weren't exactly, you know, grown men, but we would start to push. We could barely move this merry-go-round. But we knew if we kept on pushing that we would get it to go around at least one full time. And, and, and the more we pushed, the faster we were able to push. 
this merry-go-round. And we would keep pushing. And the merry-go-round would actually begin to pick up speed. And once you got your legs moving, you could move your legs a little bit faster and you could push a little bit harder. And then we would keep pushing and three times and five times and and ten times. And and then all of a sudden, something would happen with the merry-go-round where in the beginning we could barely move and we were pushing as hard as we could. Now we can't keep up with it. And the merry-go-round is moving around so fast that now you're just, that this is always the amusing part, you want to jump on it and hopefully not be wiped out in the process. And that was an art in itself. And, and, we, and we love this. But um, it, it, if the momentum, if you will, at some point had kicked into our favor. And the weight of the merry-go-round that at one point made us so slow, that weight was now making us go fast. And even though I could push no harder on the 100th step than I could on the first step, the merry-go-round would go faster and faster and faster. And every turn, every push was building on the push before it. Every turn was building on the turn before it until it was going 100 times faster than it was. And this huge merry-go-round with 30 kids on it, maybe, I don't remember how many it was. If I went back today, it was probably a very small merry-go-round. My, you know, your eyes just shrink as you get older. And, uh, but, it, but as it would be going around, it would just take on a life of its own. Now let me ask you a question. At what point did that, that merry-go-round reach breakthrough? At what point did it go from being this impossible disc to move, to just moving itself? What if someone were to come up to me, and they were to look at me as we were pushing this merry-go-round, and they were to say, which push was the push that made this merry-go-round go so fast? And even as a child, I would be able to look at them and say, that is a stupid question. Because you can't define one push as being the great singular push that made the merry-go-round go around fast. Was it, now that, that's a tongue twister. Was it the first push? Was it the tenth push? Was it the hundredth push? No, it was all of those coming together. It was the overall accumulation of an effort applied in a consistent direction, keeping on, just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. Now somehow, wham, we hit breakthrough and we could not keep up with the merry-go-round. And then you just get to jump on and enjoy the ride. There is a spiritual application of that that you can get to it when you start off. We all know what it's like to when you when you don't know how to fast and you want to start fasting. It's impossible to just skip one singular meal. But after as you build spiritual discipline and you learn to to to, to fast one meal and then you learn to fast an entire day and then you learn to fast 24 hours and then 3 days and then a, a week and and you learn to go on Daniel's fast where you go for 21 days or 30 days and you only eat fruit and vegetables and and you learn how to do this and at first it's painful and it's difficult but at some point it, it goes from being this hard uh, burdensome thing to to where you realize that now it's pushing you and you can't even wait to get in the house of God because your spiritual life has gone from being something that's weighing you down to being something that's lifting you up. That's the reality of life. Breakthroughs never come in one fell swoop. There is no, there is, and I don't care who, who says it, they're wrong. There is no single defining action. 
There is no one grand program. There is no one killer innovation. There is no solitary lucky break. There is no wrenching revolution. There is no moment of, aha, it just does not exist. But on the contrary, breakthroughs come about by a cumulative process, step by step, action by action, decision by decision, turn by turn, and it all adds up to sustained, spectacular results. But life stories will deceive us into thinking differently. We'll, we'll, we'll hear things and we'll think that somebody just appeared out of nowhere because nobody talks about the merry-go-round until it's already turning into a thousand rotations a minute. Nobody talks about the sweat. The only thing we want to hear about is the success. And if we're not careful, this can skew our perception as to how breakthroughs come about. Sometimes we doubt tremendous breakthroughs as though a person went from nothing to everything in some sort of overnight metamorphosis. That's not, that's not true. Peter, for example, on the day of Pentecost seemed to be an overnight success. And preachers are all guilty of preaching that, that Peter went from nothing to everything on the day of Pentecost. But we're, when we do that, we're discounting the fact that he spent uh, three and a half years with Jesus. Three and a half years every day walking and talking and listening to and discussing and eating with Jesus Christ. That is the reason he was able to get up on the day of Pentecost. Most of us don't want to spend three and a half years doing anything. And so from the outside, breakthroughs look dramatic, almost revolutionary. But from the inside, breakthroughs don't feel very dramatic at all. People on the inside of a breakthrough don't see the breakthrough because they've been doing it so long that they just thought it was the next step. That was just the next thing that was supposed to happen. Consider that when we think of the American Revolution, when you think of the American Revolution, the only date, if I were to ask everybody in here, what date comes to mind on the American Revolution? Hopefully you would all say Independence Day, July 4th. The signing of the Declaration of Independence. What a great breakthrough. Ironically, however, only two people signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. First people signed it on July 2nd. There were some that didn't sign it until October and November. There was no one singular day where they all got together. And I mean, if you look at John Hancock's signature, it probably took him a couple days to write that. So it's not one single day. And the only year we think about when we think about the American Revolution, 1776. But the American Revolution actually started 30 years before that. Before the first gun was fired, the American Revolution started 30 years prior. The war itself lasted eight years. Those are the parts of, of, of breakthrough that we seem to forget, that there's all this time and effort and energy that's required. Real financial fortunes require time to accumulate. And most lottery winners are broke within a few years. The only ones that aren't are the ones that gave it away. And likewise, real spiritual lives require time to develop. But unfortunately, most Christians are playing a spiritual lottery, hoping for a winning spiritual ticket. And from the outside, these, these breakthroughs, they look dramatic. But from the inside, they don't feel very dramatic. And that's, that's, that's one of the things that we've got to take hold of in our spiritual walk. That from the outside, somebody else may see something amazing happen. And on the inside, we're going... What are, you, what are you talking about? I'm just taking the next step. 
this is just the next push. This is this is just this is just the next rotation of the of the giant wheel. Take I love this analogy. Imagine an egg. Uh, just a white chicken egg. From the outside, nothing spectacular is happening. It's just sitting there in the nest, being incubated by its mother. There is no reason to pay the egg much attention. But one day, the egg cracks open, and out jumps a chicken. And everybody, especially little children, this is wonderful. This is amazing. This egg has cracked open, and now it's a chicken. The transformation of the egg to the chicken. What a great breakthrough. But the egg did not undergo some overnight metamorphism. Radically altering itself into a chicken. From the outside, that egg looked dormant. But from the inside, the chicken was evolving. It was growing. It was developing. It was incubating. And from the chicken's point of view, if we were able to ask a chicken, which would be entertaining, what was it that caused this great breakthrough? And the chicken's thinking, it just got crowded. So I cracked open the egg. It was the next thing I was supposed to do. It was the next step in a long chain of steps that led up to that moment. It's a big step, no doubt. It, it, it is, it is, it's, it's, it's an important step, but it's not the radical single transformation it looks like to those of us watching from the outside. And we're all guilty. Everybody in here, myself included, we're all guilty of looking for the one big thing, the miracle moment that will define our breakthrough. We all want that dream that will revolutionize our lives, that mile marker that we can all look back to and say, that was the moment, that was the time, that was the day. Unfortunately, my life was littered with a lot of those. This mile marker and the next mile marker and then the next one. And, and the, the value is in making sure that the, all those mile markers are headed the same direction. And so on the outside, people will look at me and say, that's a breakthrough. I'm going, I, I missed that. There were no fireworks. There were nothing, nothing grand happened. There's, there, we all want to be like Paul, the apostle. Wow, to be able to, to be on the road to Damascus and to have a bright light shine out of heaven and God speak to us. That would be really cool. Especially if there are people watching. It's always more valuable if you have witnesses. But we don't need to forget that Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel for his entire life before his trip down the road to Damascus. Gamaliel was the, was the, the most important teacher of their time. And that's where Paul was studying. And then after his Damascus experience, he spent another three and a half years in Asia learning more. And this all happened before all the missionary journeys happened. Before Paul revolutionized the world. He spent a lifetime before he had his breakthrough. It didn't seem like a breakthrough to, to, to Paul. There's no moment of a how. It's just a bunch of interlocking pieces that are built upon one another that, that may in the end look like a breakthrough. It may look like a single stroke to those peering in from the outside. But it's anything like that from those looking from the inside. Any basketball fans in, in church tonight? Oh, we even have some ladies raise their hands. I was not expecting that, but now I don't feel uh, like a mouse chauvinist telling this illustration. 
I'm sure you guys have heard of the UCLA Bruins. I'm positive. The basketball dynasty of the 60s and the 70s, and even lately they had a coach who said he was going to return them to that dynasty. Most, which is, I think, kind of ironic, because he's, up to now he's done nothing. Most basketball fans know that the Bruins won. Ten NCAA championships in just 12 years. And at one, one point, they had amassed a 61-game winning streak under the legendary coach, John Wooden. But if you were to ask them, they know about the 10 championships. They know about the 61-game winning streak. But if you were to ask them, how many years did Wooden coach the Bruins before his first NCAA championship? They don't know. Because they didn't hear about him until he started winning. But he coached 15 years before he won his first championship. From 1948 to 1963, Wooden worked in relative obscurity before winning his first championship in 1964. Year by year, Coach Wooden built an underlying foundation, developed a recruiting system, he implemented a consistent philosophy, and he refined a style of play, and nobody paid any attention to it. They, didn't, they ignored this quiet, soft-spoken coach and his team until wham! They hit breakthrough and systematically crushed every serious competitor for more than a decade. And that's just really cool. And overnight, success. Fifteen years in the making. Sam Walton began in 1945. We all know who Sam Walton is. I wish he hadn't come to my town, but <laughs> that's a whole other debate. I do admire what he was able to accomplish. Sam Walton began in 1945 with a single dime store. 1945, one dime store. He didn't open his second store for another seven years. 1952, Walton built incrementally step by step. It took Sam Walton 25 years, 25 years to grow from one store to a chain of 38 Walmart. 25 years to build 38 stores. But then from 1970 to 2000, Walmart hit breakthrough momentum and exploded to over 3,000 stores. So the first 25 years, he built 38 stores. And then the next 30 years, he built 3,000 stores. With over $150 billion in revenues. Sam Walton himself wrote in his book, he said, somehow over the years people have gotten the impression that Walmart was just this great idea that turned into an overnight success. And he continued on, but it was an outgrowth of everything we'd been doing since 1945. And like most overnight successes, it was about 20 years in the making. Preachers can very quickly tell the story of David. The life of David. We talk about him being a shepherd boy. And he runs out there on the field. And he kills Goliath. And then he does all these other great things. And Saul chases him. And he gets Michael. And, and, and all these wonderful things happen. And then he gets on the throne of, of, of Israel. We can tell the story of David really quick. But that was not the reality for David. See, David spent a long, a long time on the backside of his father's fields. Watching dad's sheep. And at the same time, using a slingshot to chase off wolves. David had, had so uh, honed his skills as a slingshot artist, if you will, 
that he could beat the bark off the side of a tree, that he could hit a wolf square in the middle of the head. David was a marksman with a slingshot. And so when he got his chance at breakthrough, he had already invested a whole lot of time. When he killed Goliath, it was not luck. It, as someone said, it was an opportunity crossing paths with preparation. And he just kept doing it. And some people would say, oh, you just happened to be lucky. You just happened to be the right place at the right time. David, if I had been there, I could have been the one to do that. Not so. Because you wouldn't have been ready with the sling as David was. And David prepared. Now, the, the, the crazy thing about David is, is even after he was anointed king, it was 15 years before, he, before Saul died. And then when Saul died and, and David became the king of Hebron, it was another seven years before the, the nation of Israel was unified and he took the throne of Israel. And to us it seems like an overnight thing, but for David it was everything but overnight. And when I think we've got to realize that in our spiritual walk with God, that we've got, uh, we've got to just take it one step at a time. And on the outside, somebody else may say, wow, what a tremendous breakthrough the life church is having. And the life church will look back out and say, what are you talking about? It's just the same. This is just an outgrowth of what we've been doing. We've been going down to the church every morning for prayer. We're there on Wednesday night. We worship God. We pray. We have great teaching. We're there on Sundays. We're in the altars. We're worshiping God. We're teaching the Sunday school class. And we just do it, and we do it, and we do it, and we do it. And, and everybody else thinks, wow, the life church, wham, right through the wall and just had this miraculous revival. And y'all will say, it's the outgrowth of everything that we've always been doing. In his book, The Outliers, author Malcolm Gladwell tells of a study that was done to determine what role, and I love this, to determine what role talent plays in success versus that of preparation and hard work. We all think talent and hard work, and we think that LeBron James and Michael Jordan and, and whoever are the other superstars, Albert Pujols, they, they rose to the top on talent. And that's why they got to do what they're doing. And so this study was done in the early 1990s by psychologist Kay Anders Erickson and, and two colleagues. And they did the study at Berlin's Elite Academy of Music. And with the help of the academy's professors, they asked the professors, we want you to divide your students up into three groups. In the first group, we want you to put the stars, the students with the potential to become world-class soloists. In the second group, we want you to put in there those that are judged good, the ones who will be able to play second and third chair, fourth and fifth chair in symphonies. And in the third group, we want you to put that those who they are good, but they're not ever going to play professionally, and they're really just going to be music teachers in the public school system. Now, all three of these groups are far superior to me in, when it comes to music talent. So I'm not insulting any of them. But you have the, the lower echelon of school teachers, and then the middle group there, the ones who back up, the really great ones, and then you have the great ones. All the violinists were asked the same question. Over the course of your entire career, Ever since you first picked up a violin, how many hours have you practiced? How many hours have you practiced? Everyone from all three groups started playing at about five years of age. 
in those first few years, everyone practiced roughly the same amount of time, about two or three hours a week. But when the students were around the age of eight, real differences started to emerge. The students who would end up the best in their class began to practice more than everybody else. They were practicing six hours a week by the age of nine. They were practicing eight hours a week by the age of 12. They were practicing 16 hours a week by the age of 14. And up and up and up until by the age of 20, they were practicing over 30 hours a week on the violin. In fact, by the age of 20, the elite performers had each totaled more than 10,000 hours of practice. By contrast, the middle group, the good students, the backup musicians, had totaled 8,000 hours of practice, 2,000 hours less. And the future music teachers had totaled just over 4,000 hours. The psychologists then compared amateur pianists with professional pianists. And the same pattern emerged. The amateurs never practiced more than about three or four hours a week over the course of their childhood. And by the age of 20, they had totaled about uh, 2,000 hours of practice. The professionals, on the other hand, steadily increased their practice time after time until by the age of 20, like the violinists, they had over 10,000 hours of practice. And the striking thing about this study is that psychologists could not find one single violinist or pianist that rose to the top on talent. There were a lot of talented ones that were only teaching schools. No musician made it to the top just because they were a natural. But on the other hand, there was not one single student that had put in 10,000 hours of practice that was not at the top. Their research suggests that the one thing that distinguishes one performer from another is how hard he or she works. And reflecting on this study, it seems that the reason that an individual violinist or pianist rises to the level of a star performer is simply because they are possessed with a love for music that moves them to submit their entire lives to perfecting that music. Literally. The authority in the music world is directly connected with their submission of their lives. The reason that there are authorities on the violin is because they submitted themselves to the violin. The reason there are authorities on the piano is because they submitted themselves 30 hours a week to the piano. They became great violinists simply because they are so entirely submitted that their life is devoted to that and that alone. People who are great spiritual men and women do not have overnight breakthroughs. They become great because they put in time. And it may just be three or four hours in the beginning. But as they grow, as they mature, they go from three hours a week to five hours a week. And they go from five hours a week to ten hours a week. And then from ten to twenty and twenty to thirty until after they've been doing it for ten and twenty years, they have put in ten thousand hours. I, I don't know, I'm forty years old, maybe I have, but I wish that I had invested more than ten thousand hours of prayer by the time that I was twenty. 
I wish that I had invested more than 10,000 hours in the Word of God by the time that I was 20. I wish that I'd had that kind of devotion. I'll just admit to you, I did not have that kind of devotion. But the people that will have great and supernatural breakthroughs in this world, in this church, in Pasadena, in California, will be the ones who will say, I will do whatever it takes to become a master in this one area. It's not going to happen. You're not going to just pick up a guitar and start playing. You're not going to sit down at the keyboard and just start playing. You're not going to step into the pulpit and just start preaching wonderful messages that come from God. It's going to require time being spent, time being invested, time being poured into it. You selling out your life to that. And so I say to this church, this entire church body as a whole, as one unit, an outsider looking in. If this church is going to have the breakthrough that Pasadena needs for it to have. And Pasadena will see it as a breakthrough. You guys won't because you'll be in it. But if it's going to have the breakthrough it needs to have, it's going to require that men and women and boys and girls of this church commit themselves to doing something that seems like it's just a step. It doesn't seem exciting. It doesn't seem vibrant. It doesn't run chill bumps up and down my spine. It doesn't cause me to jump up and down and dance and run the aisles. Because it's just a boring step. But it's one step after the next that will lead this church to doing something in Pasadena that nobody else can do. And it does begin with your morning prayers. It does begin with your faithfulness to the house of God. And it does begin with teaching Bible study. It begins with your own life. Let me ask a question. I don't want you to answer. Nobody raise their hands. Just answer to yourself. How many people in this church have read entirely through the Bible just one time? I don't know. Now, some of y'all are answering. Thankful that you're answering. But there's other people that probably don't want to answer that question. Because I did a survey. And it's not a scientific survey. It's still on the Internet. Anybody that could participate wanted to participate. But only like 40% of the people that participated had read the Bible through one time. So there's probably a whole lot of people that just said, you know what, I don't want to participate in that poll. Because I'd have to like check no. There are some pollsters who say less than 5% of the church has read the Bible through an entire time. Why? Because it's not a breakthrough. There's nothing supernatural about it. It takes time. It's just one more step. Would you stand to your feet? If we were to make commitments in this church tonight, it would just be one more step. And a lot of people say, well, how many commitments do I have to make before something radical happens in my life? The reality is that Paul said, I die daily. Paul said, every day I make that commitment. We want to come and make one commitment and leave and just be a different man or a different woman. Paul said, no, you've got to do it every day. If you want to have a breakthrough life, you have to break through a little bit. Every single 
That's what I want to happen. I want us to go to God in prayer right now. And whether you want to turn and kneel at your chair, stand and raise your hands, or you want to make your way down this altar, wherever you want to pray, I want us to go to God in prayer right now. And I want our prayer to be, God, whatever it takes, I want to live a breakthrough life. The kind that is willing to invest 10,000 hours. Even though nobody else is there. When I'm in that room all by myself practicing. When I'm playing the piano and nobody's listening. I want to play. Because one day I know. I'll have put in that 10,000 hour. And I will become a star performer. the name of Jesus. Would you begin to pray? Wherever you want to pray, however you want to pray. If you want to kneel, if you want to stand and pray, you want to make your way to this altar, whatever you feel comfortable doing, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus.
stand with me and together let's sing this um, as a prayer to God just close your eyes and sing it to Jesus I need your glory
Jesus Christ. Father, as we prepare to dismiss from this sanctuary, I pray that our hearts, Lord Jesus, will be turned inside out, upside down, Lord Jesus. I want there to be a challenge, Lord, that lives inside each of us. Let there be a fire, God, that lives within each side of us, that we want to be 10,000-hour Christians, that we want to be 10,000-hour saints, Lord, that we want to be 10,000-hour prayer warriors. We want to be 10,000 hours in Bible study, God. Let that fire be in us, God, that we will not settle, Lord Jesus, for anything less than what takes us to a breakthrough, God. One single step at a time, one, one push at a time, Lord Jesus, one turn at a time. In the name of Jesus, 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 in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah.